Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you are moving us through your work as you wrote it by Matthew's hand. Thank you, Father, for the insight you're offering and the challenges, the exhortation that it brings us. As we learn things, Father, help us to put them into action in our own lives, to be better servants with what we've learned. Help us to be doers, not just hearers of your word. And Father, most of all, I ask that our heart and our attention to things of your word would translate into a heart for the people of your word and for the world at large. For that's its ultimate purpose, Father, to bring us to those who would ultimately be part of the same body by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, the parables of the kingdom are now behind us. We're ready to move on to some new things. What we're going into now is a section that comes up out of the ashes of the kingdom proposal turning into a kingdom program. And what we move into now is a a section that runs from chapter 13 to chapter 19. And chapter 13 to chapter 19 is a section that bridges us into the final events of Matthew's gospel. At the very end, of course, is the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry and his crucifixion and his resurrection. But between now and there, you have this section in, in which we're now starting that begins to explain how he gets from a kingdom proposal and a crowd and adoring fans and the like to being nailed to wood. How does he move from that to the other? And so it's an important section in the Gospel of Matthew. It tells you how Jesus went from hero to zero in such a relatively short period of time. And in fact, it's kind of easy to understand that transition. Because remember, I told you that Jesus' ministry really changes after his rejection by Israel. He goes from teaching openly to teaching in a very circumspect way with parables and so on. He doesn't heal just anybody anymore. He only heals those who have shown faith first. Faith is now a prerequisite to healing after chapter 12. And no longer is he declaring the kingdom openly. No longer is he offering it to Israel. He doesn't say the kingdom of God is at hand. Instead, he speaks of things like persecution and judgment and his own death now. And completely confusing his disciples in the process. But given all of those changes, now that he's become so aloof and so selective, it's no surprise that the crowds begin to turn on him. And of course, the religious leaders have always been set against him. So it doesn't take long for the tide to turn. So let's start that journey tonight. And the first of these negative receptions involves Jesus' earthly family and his friends in Nazareth. And it starts at the end of 13. I know we're in 14, but they're not quite there. We're going to get there. We start really at the end of 13 in chapter 13, verse 53. It says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there, and he came to his hometown, and he began teaching them in their synagogue, So that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. All right, well, we learned in the earlier chapters of this book that when Jesus began his three-year earthly ministry, you remember I told you he moved his family from the home they had in Nazareth to Capernaum, 
which is located on the western shores of the Galilee. And he did so at the time because Capernaum was right near several major roads, Roman roads, so that that would be the ideal place from which to base the Galilean ministry. It was easy from that point to go just about anywhere. And it was more accessible. Nazareth is up in the hills and the mountains. It was hard to get up there and back and forth and so on. And it was a bigger city. And so Jesus relocates with his family right before he began his earthly ministry. The scriptures say that Jesus was the one who prompted that move. Well, that would tell us something because Jesus being the firstborn son in the family of Mary and Joseph, it would suggest to us that Joseph had died by that point. That it wasn't Joseph making decisions anymore. It was the oldest son making the decisions. So that would indicate that Joseph was no longer alive and Jesus made the decision to move the family. But before he did that, for the prior almost three decades, he had lived in Nazareth. And Nazareth Nazareth was a small town even by ancient standards. It's not even that big today. And it's the kind of place where everybody knew everybody, as they do now in small towns. Everybody knew everybody's family. Everybody knew each other's children. All the children grew up together. Everybody knew each other's names. And so Jesus and his family would have been very well known. Joseph, Mary, the family, they were you know, like part of the family of the city. And now a year or two maybe has gone by after Jesus relocated to Capernaum. And Matthew tells us that now he goes back for a visit shortly after his rejection. And on a Sabbath, he goes into the local synagogue for service. And Matthew says, verse 54, that it's Jesus teaching in that day. Now, that might seem a bit odd. Why did he suddenly have that role? Well, it was customary. It's custom in Jewish synagogues for the uh, synagogue community to invite any male guest who happens to come in on that day to teach them on that day. Because every Jewish man was expected to know the Scripture. And every Jewish man was supposed to be able to teach when called upon out of the scriptures. And so it was an honor and they extended it. And then you have someone like Jesus, who's a favored son of the city. Certainly he would have been offered that opportunity when he came back. Moreover, you know, the citizens of Nazareth, they know what has been going on in the Galilee. Everybody's heard about Jesus. So he would have been a man of some notoriety. Everybody's a little interested in what he's going to say. So he's given the floor. And he accepts and he teaches. But this will be the last time he ever does this. This is the last time in Matthew's gospel that you see Jesus teaching openly to a crowd of people. And it's the final time that Matthew says Jesus enters into a synagogue in his earthly ministry. And that change is in keeping with what we've already said, that his focus in ministry has shifted dramatically from an open preaching of the gospel to a quiet, private preparation of his disciples to take his place. Once he leaves from now on, he's only going to teach to those he knows are of faith. And increasingly, he is going to shun the normal circles of Orthodox Jewish life because they represent the establishment of the Pharisees. So in this case, for his last time, he takes a seat in the service and he teaches. Interestingly, Matthew didn't tell us what he says. We have no record of what he taught. And I think it's because it probably didn't matter what he was going to say. It really wouldn't have mattered what he taught on. Whatever it was, they rejected it out of hand, it says. And the reason they dismissed his teaching is a little surprising, actually. Verse 54, we we hear that they're astonished by the teaching. And the the word in Greek for astonished is, it literally means amazed, but it can also mean panicked. Uh, I don't think that was panic here, but I think the sense of it is pandemonium. This, you know, almost rising up out of their seats at what they were hearing. He's teaching new things, even revolutionary things from Scripture. It's not that they're wrong. It's just that they're so different from anything they had heard before, they don't know what to do with it. He's turning convention on its head because convention was taught by Pharisees who didn't know what they were talking about. 
And as a result, they had distorted the view of Scripture for a whole generation or more of Jews. And so now Jesus gets up and he resets everybody's understanding of the Bible. He teaches it properly and they're astonished. I'm not Jesus. I don't pretend to be, of course. I don't know the Scriptures anywhere near what Jesus could do with it. But I still find on my scale, a small scale, similar moments in my own ministry. Just the thought that you unveil the Bible the way it's meant to be taught, just plainly teaching what it says, and you'd be surprised how often people are like, oh my gosh, where did this come from? Well, it's always been there. It's not like I made it up. But they haven't ever heard it taught because long ago in a lot of churches, people stopped actually reading and teaching the Bible. What they do now is they teach what so-and-so said, which is what so-and-so told them, which is what so-and-so said, which is... It's like a game of telephone. Only it's been taught from seminary to seminary to person to person, and now no one knows what the Bible says anymore. And so I, I tell people it's really interesting when the revolutionary thing in the church is to be a Bible teacher. That's where we're at. So the crowd reacts... And then Jesus does miracles, it says. And then they're only more amplified in their amazement when he does that. And so they say, where does this guy get his wisdom and his power? Now, that may sound complimentary, but by the context of what goes on here, we know that's not how to hear it. You need to hear this as an expression of doubt. Them saying, effectively, it is inconceivable that this guy could have such wisdom and power. And when he heals people, it only serves to make them all the more suspicious that his source of power might be evil. It might be something other than God. They just can't buy it. Why? Why are they doubting what they're hearing and seeing? Notice verse 57. Matthew says, they took offense at him. In Greek, the phrase, to take offense, it literally translates, they stumbled at him. They sinned, in other words, because of him. It wasn't the message they rejected, and that's the point, friends. They weren't offended at the message. They were offended at him. They were offended over Jesus. They stumbled over him. And in verse 55, you see the thinking that was driving that. The people look at one another and they say, Isn't this a carpenter's son? Isn't this the son of Joseph who worked among us? Isn't this the guy whose mother was Mary, who we used to see collecting water at the well every morning in our own town? Isn't this the same guy who has the brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And we know what kind of goofballs those kids were. And, and then the record, uh, Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark also records this scene, but he adds one other detail. He says, are not his sisters with us? Meaning, Jesus' sisters were there. Now, under what terms, under what circumstances would Jesus' sisters have been in Nazareth when Jesus moved the rest of the family to Capernaum. They married. So he has married sisters living in Nazareth. Now, as an aside here, before we get back to the story, it's remarkable to consider that Jesus had no less than four brothers and at least two married sisters by the time he entered ministry, which, by the way, denies the Catholic false teaching that says that Mary remained a virgin her entire life, even after she gave birth to Jesus. That is not only unbiblical, it's completely unnecessary. There's nothing that says we need that. Mary's not supposed to be venerated, so it doesn't matter. She's a normal woman, except that she was you know, given a baby without the normal method the first time. After that, it was normal, for what it's worth. Noting these things, the people say, he's that guy that we've known all this time. What are they really saying? You know what they're really saying? He's just like us. He's just one of us. That is, he's just an average guy. He's way too normal to be viewed as an authority figure in our life. Uh, they had known him his whole life. They, they, they had seen him. Somebody had cleaned his diaper. Right? Someone had seen him with a runny nose. So, I'm not trying to denigrate our Lord. I'm saying as a human being, 
he experienced normal human life absent sin. And as a result, from their point of view, he's just like us. Who do you think you are? Is sort of implied in this, right? They couldn't reconcile the Jesus that they saw in front of them with the one that they knew from all those years living in Nazareth. What they knew about him back when invalidated what they saw before them now. That's the basic problem. And he responds to their unbelief in a very interesting way. Jesus doesn't say, you, you people of unbelief, uh, you, know, you, you people of no intellect or no sense. Or, I mean, he doesn't criticize them. He actually says that their response is the result of a natural bias that is present in the heart of every unbeliever. He says it's natural. That is to say it's normal. That a prophet, generally speaking, receives no honor in his own hometown or his own household. By prophet here, he, I think he's referring generally to anyone empowered by the Lord to speak or do remarkable things, uh, spiritual things. And by hometown or, or household, I think generally we're talking about people who know someone best, those who might see themselves in them, identify in them. So, for example, your unsaved family and friends, or your next-door neighbor, or your elementary teacher, or your high school coach, you know, people you, you knew for a period in your life who came to know you very well, perhaps before you knew the Lord. Those unsaved hearts, who one day you might come back to them, now with the perspective you have in Christ and with a testimony and with spiritual insight from that relationship you have, and you might begin to talk to some of them. And if you've ever done that or had that experience, I know I have because I have plenty of unsaved in my family. And as you come into their life and they know you too well, that bias shows up. So you try to explain to your mother, who may be unsaved, how you go to heaven. And all she can think about is how she had to help you find your shoes before you went to school every morning. Right? Who are you to tell me how to get to heaven? Or, you know, childhood friends, you tell them about Jesus. You say, I've got this new view of, a, of, a, of the world and of eternity. I need to share it with you. And all they think about is all the silly, stupid things you used to do in junior high. And that's who you are to them. And Jesus in Nazareth, he says, just like that, he says, unbelievers who knew him well were judging the message by what they thought they knew of the messenger, and it created a bias. And that bias was driven by a single sinful force called pride. If you break this down, if you try to understand what causes a heart to think like this, it comes back to pride. Because in in this sense, the better we know a person, the more we identify with them. The the more uh, that our life and their life intersect, the more we see them as just like us. And when we have that uh, relationship with someone... We start to look at them as someone who has no potential for authority over us. That they shouldn't have that right. That there's nothing they have we don't have. So what gives them the right to take a position of authority in my life? And let's be honest. Accepting spiritual truth from anyone, and I mean even a stranger, takes a dose of humility. Doesn't it? Especially if you're an unbeliever. Because what you're being told is, you don't know what you think you know. You don't understand what you think you understand. And in fact, you're so wrong about this, you're going to hell. Now, I wouldn't recommend that as an evangelistic technique. (laughs) But you can say it as nicely as you want, and if they get the message, that's where their mind goes. I mean, eventually it has to, otherwise you didn't get through. They have to get to the point of recognizing, so, so Steve, what you're telling me is, that unless I believe what you're telling me, I can't go to heaven. You see, once you reach that moment, that's the test in their heart. Can they accept that truth from you? 
Now, if you're a stranger, there's a dose of humility required even still. But how much harder is it to demonstrate humility in response to the message when it's being brought by someone you know really well? You have that instinct of, who do you think you are? How can you know something I don't know? We've had the same experience. How, how can you be above me in this? And that was where Jesus was. The citizens of Nazareth, Nazareth all knew his story. They all knew he was a kid. He played in the dirt streets. He was a young man who studied Torah like all the other kids did. He learned carpentry with his dad. He was a modest, unremarkable young man who just lived an ordinary, quiet life at home. And moreover, what they also knew is he didn't have this family of great spiritual uh, learning and privilege and accomplishment. He didn't attend a rabbinical school and he didn't come under the teaching of some famous rabbi and... You know, there was nothing in his earthly experience that could explain why he is what he is. And so they had to dismiss it. Because by every definition, at least from their point of view, he was ordinary. He was absolutely ordinary. Which, by the way, reminds you that living sinlessly doesn't turn you into a freak. Think about it. If they could be so amazed at the prospect that Jesus could be a spiritual giant in the way that he was, if they're just dismissing it out of hand, it tells you something. It tells you that though he was sinless as a baby and sinless as a two-year-old, imagine that for a moment, and (laughs) sinless as a teenager, even more remarkable, and sinless as a young man and as an adult, though he lived that way according to the testimony of Scripture, somehow no one noticed. You know what I'm saying? They might have said, oh, he's a good guy. Yeah. You can depend on him. But no one ever had the conclusion that, you know what, I don't think he's ever sinned once. Because if they had, I tell you what, that would have made an impression on a Jewish society that cared a lot about sin. Right? What that means is that it also tells you, by the way, that he never drew attention to himself over it. Look how good I am. Right? What we're hearing is this. If you ever thought that being sinless would make you robotic or weird or freaky or different, that just shows you how saturated we are in living in a sinless world and taking it for granted. You can be sinless and live among sinful people and no one notices if you're doing it right. That is, if you don't draw attention to yourself. But Jesus being so ordinary meant he couldn't be extraordinary. That is a bias that is not just present in Christ's day. It's still here today. It's still in every unbeliever. And the Lord, in his love and in his mercy for the unbeliever, has a way of mitigating that bias. And I don't know that you, if you haven't thought about it like this, I want to encourage you to think about this. The way the Lord uses the church to bring the gospel quite often is designed to mitigate the bias of those who do not accept the prophet in their own home. How does that happen? Well, in the Bible, you'll see this pattern over and over again in which the Lord sends messengers to strangers all the time. Uh, In the Old Testament, you have prophets who commonly go to unfamiliar places. You know, he would send the prophet of the south to the north. And he would send the prophet of the north to the south in, in terms of Israel. Or he would send people from long distances. The queen of Sheba goes to Solomon. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Why not just take someone in Nineveh to talk to Nineveh? And why not just take someone down in the south to talk to the queen? Because of this bias. The Lord took Moses from the people of Israel for 40 years so that when he went back again, he was not familiar any longer. And he took John the Baptist and stuck him out in the wilderness for years on end so that when he came back to the very same people he had come from, he was new and different and they would listen. God is so much in love with with bringing the gospel to the hearts of the unbelieving that he is even willing to work around that bias in the way that he sends 
the messenger. Which, by the way, should encourage you to consider for a moment that he will do the same with your witness too. That is, he will bring you to strangers as much or more often than he will to people who know you well. Because the bias works against you otherwise. And I think that principle explains why we have, as a church generally, sent missionaries far away. And why we still should from time to time. There's nothing wrong with sending someone to the other side of the world. You know, we say, well, what about our people in our own backyard? Yes, we should do that too. But sometimes the best method is to send someone a little further so that they might reach people that would see them in a different light. So let that heighten your readiness. Let that heighten your willingness to talk to strangers. It's not the way we see it. We think a stranger is less likely to accept the gospel. The Bible says it's the other way around. And if you've ever tried to witness to a parent or a family member, you know what I'm talking about. All right, one more thought. We need to be careful not to allow this bias to creep back into our thinking. Because that can happen too, even as a believer. Pride never goes away. And what I mean by that is this. Even though we know Christ and we have the Spirit because we know Christ, we can still become hardened to the truth when it comes to us by someone we know too well. Even in the body. So guard against that. Don't let your familiarity with the messenger cause you to second-guess whether they, of all people, could tell you something you don't already know. And I think spouses are like the most common target for us in that regard, right? A wife or a husband who has a word to share with their spouse on spiritual matters can sometimes have to work doubly hard to get through because they are a spouse. Or a parent listening to a child or vice versa. Just, be un- just understand that the messenger shouldn't be the evaluation, it should be the message. And God will use people around us, of course, to speak to us. All right, as we finish this moment, I want you to notice at the end of verse 58, Matthew says that as a result of the crowd's rejection, Jesus did not do many miracles there. Now, that's the first time you've seen that statement in Matthew's gospel. And it's a reminder, once more, of this shift in the program. As a result of being rejected, he is only going to do miracles where he finds faith. No faith, no miracles. Now, we know he did some here, so that means a few in Nazareth received him, but he only did a few. That's a change. Why does Matthew have this moment at the end of chapter 13? Well, because he wants you to understand that those who knew Jesus best also rejected him. It wasn't just the religious leaders in chapter 12. It's everyone at every level of society. The whole spectrum of Jewish society is going to ultimately be against him. Here you see those who know him best. And now, let's move to the other end for a second. Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. And said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work with him. That's chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. And Herod the Tetrarch refers to one of the sons here of Herod the Great. Let me give you a few minutes of history on Herod. First of all, remember, Herod the Great was the one who tried to have Jesus killed as a baby when he went to slaughter all the children in Bethlehem. Remember that? Uh, He died in 4 B.C., And when he did, his sons received pieces of the kingdom. And his son, Herod Antipas, received the northern region, the present-day region of Galilee. That's the Herod in view here, Herod the Tetrarch. That's Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. He lived primarily in Tiberias, which is still there today on the shores of the Galilee. Naturally, Herod heard the news of what Jesus was doing. Everyone's heard it. But you notice, like the ones in Nazareth, that he reacts the wrong way to what Jesus is doing. But he does it in an ironic twist to those in Nazareth. In Nazareth, those who knew him best underestimated 
Jesus' spiritual credentials. Herod makes the opposite mistake, in a way. Herod, who didn't know Jesus at all, he exaggerates Jesus' spiritual identity in this bizarre way, thinking him the resurrected ghost or person of of John the Baptist. Now, that detail was introduced by Matthew here so as to subtly let us know that John the Baptist is now dead. And in bringing that to our attention, he now explains how that happened. Verse 3. For when Herod had arrested John, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of the brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. All right, well, the exploits of the family of Herod was a soap opera that would cause HBO to blush. Uh, In verse 3, Matthew mentions a couple of names, Herod Antipas and Herod's wife Herodias. Now, Herod Antipas is that son I mentioned, the Tetrarch. Like his father, he was a nominal Jew, in name only, not a true Jew. His father, Herod the Great, had multiple wives, and he had children by those different mothers. He eventually killed all his wives because he was paranoid about people taking the throne from him. And so in addition to Herod Antipas from one wife, he had a son named Philip, and he had another son named Aristobulus, all from different wives. And Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias, which is the woman mentioned here. So yes, that's right. Herod the Great's son Antipas married Herod the Great's granddaughter of another wife, Herodias, making him marrying his great-niece, basically. And if that wasn't bad enough, she had previously been married to another of Herod's sons, Philip. And between those two marriages, she had been a mistress to a step-uncle. So this is a woman who is guilty of multiple adulteries and incestual relationships within the family of Herod. Now, in our world today, we're so accustomed to the misadventures of the rich and powerful that I I suspect if this was happening today, we we would just kind of say, oh, there it goes again, right? But in Jesus' day, that was truly scandalous. People just did not do that, even among those who had power. And John the Baptist fearlessly said so publicly. And in verse 4, Matthew says that John was condemned by the Tetrarch because of it. He wanted to kill John. And since John had gained this reputation as a prophet, it meant that what he said had power among the people, which is why the Tetrarch wanted to get rid of him. But for the very same reason, he couldn't kill him because he feared what the people would do. He was insecure in his power. So what he decided to do instead was just hold him and listen to him every day. Because Mark tells us in his gospel that Herod, and this is Mark six twenty. Herod was afraid of John, knowing he was righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So it's like he kept him like you would like keep a curio in a closet. He just pulled him out once in a while and brought him in and said, tell me something new today, John. And John would do his thing, and then he would put him back and keep him safe until the next day. And this went on for a while. He made a sport of it. Now, what do you suppose John the Baptist was telling Herod? I mean, based on what we know of him. I can only imagine John told uh, Herod the very same things he was telling people at the waterside. 
which would have been something like, your sins are going to condemn you, repent, the Messiah has come, the judgment is approaching, and so on. But whatever he said, Herod didn't care. He didn't listen. didn't matter. And there was another enemy of John who cared more about seeing John dead than Herod did. And I'm not talking about his wife or his, his wife's daughter or whoever that was. I'm talking about the enemy. Satan wanted John the Baptist dead, and he worked to get there. And when Herod wouldn't do his bidding, he went to the women. And Matthew says that on a fateful evening, Herod had a feast in his palace, he had guests in attendance, and on that occasion it was his birthday, and Herodias' daughter, now remember he calls him Herodias' daughter here because it's not Herod's daughter, it's a woman's daughter from somewhere else. And that girl dances, probably in a lewd fashion, that's the implication, and it impresses, her, impresses the king, and he says, Matthew says he promises her anything. Do you know what Mark says? Mark says that Herod promised this girl half his kingdom, up to half the kingdom if she asked for it. Can you imagine that? I, reading that, I think he's either very drunk, or he's demonically possessed, or both. Because who would do that? This, this girl that dances, oh, half my kingdom is yours. Now, having said that, the more remarkable thing is, she doesn't ask for half the kingdom. I think that was a mistake on her part. I'm no math whiz, but I think that was the better deal. Under the influence, that's where I say Satan is behind this, because no one's doing anything rational at this point. And under Satan's influence, Herodias instructs her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist, to which, of course, he now is forced to say yes, because he's promised it in a public setting. He can't go back on his word. That would be humiliating. And so he does it. He kills John, and John's disciples tell Jesus. Now, here again, why is this in Matthew's account? Why now? Why here? It's because it shows you the other end of this spectrum I'm talking about. Jesus' family was against him, and Roman authorities were against him. And anyone who stood between the Romans and the Jews and what they wanted would be killed. John the Baptist, in this case, but Jesus ultimately. And it's foreshadowing how Satan is going to get his way in that regard. Although, of course, we know that Satan is, is actually doing God's bidding, though he doesn't know it. So, God is going to use the evil hearts of those in Rome and among the Jews to conspire and ultimately put Jesus on the cross. Satan is a part of that plan. And so what Matthew's doing here is he's beginning to show us how we get from a Jesus who's adored and followed by huge crowds to a Jesus that is called to be put on a cross instead of Barabbas, the zealot. It's this orchestrated campaign by Satan through human beings to bring Jesus to this end. Now, what do we take from that? Well, it reminds us that the kingdom program is going to come with two sources of opposition that we will all encounter, and we'll encounter them to varying degrees depending on how much we invest in that program. First, you will have unbelievers, and unfortunately, family and friends at times, who will oppose you because they cannot accept that God could work through you. The prospect is too outside their imagination. They will question your calling. They will doubt your sincerity. And ultimately, many of them will reject your spiritual authority in their lives. They know you too well. And so they will judge you according to your own old nature. And therefore, they underestimate the degree of spiritual change God was able to do in you, bringing you to where you are now. They see the old. They can't see the new. How do you respond to that? Well, may I submit to you, you do exactly what Jesus does in this occasion. Remembering, we were once in their shoes, we show them a lot of grace. What did Jesus do? Well, in the case of those in Nazareth who rejected him, 
the scripture says he just moved on. He didn't argue. He didn't make a point. You know, he doesn't turn to them and say, if you love me, you'd believe in me. He doesn't say, because you know me so well, you should believe this. No. He just walks on. And the reason he does that is because he knows when he comes back, he may have another opportunity to win some converts. And ultimately, he does. Do you know how I know that? Well, this is not the first time that Jesus went to Nazareth and tried to preach the gospel in a synagogue. This is actually the second time we have recorded in the gospels. Luke gives us the first one. And that one happened at the very outset of his ministry. That's how we know these are different moments. And this is what we hear in Luke. In Luke chapter 4, in that earlier account, Jesus goes into Nazareth. He goes into a synagogue. He teaches in the synagogue exactly the same pattern as we just studied. And in that account, we're told that the people get so angry at what he taught in the synagogue, similar to what we see here. This time, in the earlier occasion, they drive him out of the city to a cliff. And this is what we read in Luke 4.28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage at they heard, as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. That's pretty upset, right? Verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. That's all. He just left. And now he's come back. And what happens this time? Well, he gives them another opportunity. He goes in on the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue, he teaches in the synagogue. Yes, they got upset. Thankfully, this time they're not pushing him off a cliff. But what's different this second time, the one we just studied? What's different this time? Well, this time there were some who believed and some who were saved. How do I know that? Because Matthew says he did not do many miracles, which is to say he did some. And we know at this stage of his kingdom program that in order to do a miracle, it meant he was met with some faith. So it's a a sort of roundabout way of saying, at least he had a few this time. At least he had a few. That, friends, should be your encouragement in the face of family or friends who refuse to accept that what you bring them is meaningful or true at all or worth hearing. Just remember, your message may not be received today, but it may be received tomorrow. Your goal should not be to win every argument. Your goal should be able to preserve the relationship for that future opportunity. And that means sometimes swallowing your pride, accepting their judgment, and quietly moving away. Just don't let them throw you off a cliff and come back. And then finally, what about our enemies who would act against us under Satan's control because they are out there also? What do you do about them? Well, do what John the Baptist did. When his enemy took him captive, he used that opportunity to preach the gospel to him every day. And that became his ministry. Until such time as the Lord allowed John either to go free or to lose his earthly life for Christ. And in this case, it was the latter. Sometimes in our case it will be one, and other times it may be the other. But hey, we're all going to die one day anyway. Better to die in service to Christ than otherwise. I mean, if you had to pick one. As Paul said, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So the same opponents who encountered Christ and opposed him when he was teaching the kingdom program are going to be the same opponents who are going to come against you at times as you go out witnessing to the program. Now, if you're sitting here in our safe and comfortable Western lifestyle in which Christianity is accepted mostly, you may not think about these things commonly. Let me just suggest to you two things. First, opposition is growing. It's going to get worse. The Bible makes that clear. 
Secondly, to the extent that we do not actively make our life a witness to Christ, there's no need for the enemy to persecute us, by and large, because we have chosen to self-censor. And he will spend his time on others and not waste it on you. So, as a general rule, if you're not being persecuted ever, it's probably because you're not witnessing much. So I would encourage all of us to think about how the program of the kingdom, which we have all been enlisted into, is not merely a program of winning hearts, it's also a program of enduring opposition and becoming smarter on how we deal with it. Serving Christ is a sacrifice, but friends, it's a pretty small one compared to the one he made for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for for sacrifices. Christ's most of all, and our own opportunity to sacrifice with you as well. We do ask, Father, that what you can show us in your word tonight is something we can use in the future as we talk to family and friends, that we'd be ready to to meet them where they are with a kind and caring word. But, Father, if that bias shows up, as your scriptures say it will, at times we do ask, Father, you give us patience and grace so that we would not alienate them, but we'd be ready for the next opportunity. And when the enemy comes against us, Father, as he will, Protect us. Hold us up. Guard our hearts. Lessen the impact of his schemes. Give us a a renewed commitment to remain obedient in the face of temptation. But, Father, when that attack comes and it cannot be avoided, Father, give us the courage to speak boldly about the gospel. And, Father, in the day that you appoint, we come home to you with a good testimony. That's our goal. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.